job. Great job. See, there is something I can do if you fired me. So, pull out your sheets and you'll notice our opening prayer. I invite you to join me in our opening prayer as we unite our hearts and our voices with this prayer originally penned in 1549 among Protestants. Together let us pray. Everlasting God, you have ordained and constituted the ministries of angels and mortals in a wonderful order. Grant that as your holy angels always serve you in heaven, so at your command they may help and defend us on earth through Jesus Christ, your Son, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Thank you. Um, we have spent two nights talking about angels. Uh, obviously, the two nights we have spent, we've been talking about the, the good angels. Uh, tonight and tomorrow night, we're going to be talking about the fallen angels. Uh, they're part of the same order part of God's creation. The difference is um, uh, the fallen angels rebelled. And um, we're going to be talking about them for two nights. So we have wrapped up part one and part two. So we will be starting at part three, uh, which is um, entitled Demons. Demons in the Old Testament. That's what we tend to call uh, fallen angels. Them, the, the ancients call them diamond in the Greek, we call them demons in, in the English. So with that, uh, I want to start, and I always feel a need to apologize, but I'm not going to. I'm going to start with Mr. Lewis. Uh, if you want to learn how the demons, how the enemy tempts us, one of the best ways I know to learn that besides reading the Bible is by reading uh, the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. Uh, the screw tape letters, of course, is the, the small, thin, skinny book that C.S. Lewis wrote in the uh, 1940s. It got him on the cover of Time Magazine in the United States. So it was the screw tape letters that uh, sort of catapulted him to uh, fame. Uh, the screw tape letters is, uh, is, is fictionalized. You can see it performed off Broadway. What it is, is, is a fictionalized account of a senior devil writing instruct instructions in letter form to junior devil. So what you hear in the screw tape letter, screw tape is that senior devil. Uh, screw tape is writing um, um, to Wormwood, helping Wormwood learn how to defeat us how to defeat Christians, how to draw us away from God. Uh, before I read you the quotation I want you to read, um, or I, what I want you to hear, what, um, let me give you a few of my favorite quotations from the screw tape letters. Now again, this is written in the 40s, he was British, uh, he was an Oxford scholar, his daytime job was a professor of medieval Renaissance literature, so uh, this was popular writing for the 1940s in England uh, that still 
doesn't mean you can read it while you're watching Fox News. Uh, you need to give attention to it when you're reading it or listening to it. You can uh, get, get many productions where it's, where it's being read and it's being read to you. Some of my favorite quotations, and again, you gotta keep in mind, this is a senior devil telling a junior devil how to tempt us successfully. He says things like, um, prosperity knits a man to this world. He feels he is finding his place in it, while really it, prosperity, is finding its place in him. Uh, another one, uh, the senior devil is telling the junior devil, you must therefore zealously guard in his mind, talking about us, you must therefore zealously guard in his mind the curious assumption, my time is my own. Yeah, some of you may be right there with the enemy, you know, saying my time is my own. Another thing that the senior devil says to the junior devil is, um, and again, he's, when you're reading this, you find yourself agreeing with the devils, that's a problem. You have to keep in mind you don't want to agree with these devils that are having the conversation. But the senior devil says to the junior devil, as he's working on us, all extremes except extreme devotion to God are to be encouraged. We love extremes. The one we avoid the most of is extreme devotion to God. He actually says, as he's teaching the junior devil, a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and is more amusing. That's what the devils are saying. Some of us love our moderated religion. I don't like the word moderate in any form or fashion. And we Americans love to be moderate. And the enemy loves for us to have moderated Particularly moderate their religion. Here's my favorite before I get to the quotation I want you to hear. Um, the senior devil to the junior devil is saying this. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual way. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without non-stops, without signpost. So just kind of hang on to that as you're walking your Christian walk, remembering that the safest road from enemy's perspective, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. Yeah, none of us wake up in the morning and say, I think I'm going to live as a heretic and an apostate, and I'm going to be a self-absorbed pagan. None of us wake up and say that. But just little things we start doing, little things start pulling us away from God. It's like... Um, the slow leap of the air out of a tire. And before you know it, you walk out and the tire's flat. So that's why the enemy is saying that the safest road to hell is the gradual one. Uh, anyway, but here's what he said that's very famous, maybe the most, most famous thing he said. It comes in the preface to screw tape letters, where C.S. Lewis wrote this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or the demons. One, here's the two errors. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, the demons, themselves are equally pleased by both errors. Either those who disbelieve them 
disbelieving thermal materialists or those who are fascinated by them. They see demons under every rock. Either one of those uh, choices uh, thrills the enemy. Uh, most of the people I think that I'm facing on Sunday mornings probably disbelieve in the enemy. Um, you know, for, for some of you have heard me say this for almost 40 years now, I'm going to do this one day, maybe a little bit closer to retirement or something. I, I want to, we sing, the mighty fortress is our God with great enthusiasm. That's the anthem of Protestantism, written by Martin Luther, a mighty fortress is our God. And I watch good mainline, moderated Methodists here in the United States sing, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has will his truth to triumph through us. One of these days, by the time you're bailing out, though this world with devils filled, I will make the organ stop and ask you, do you really believe that? I'm not sure most of the people in mainline moderated churches in America really believe that. You know, we've talked about materialism, being the captivating uh, worldview here in the West. If you can push Christians, and it's weird that we have to do this, if you can push Christians out of the materialistic worldview, they, they make it to the place where they're warming up to God, the Holy Spirit, maybe angels. But it's not logical for me to just warm up to the, to the good side the spirit world without acknowledging there's an outside for the spiritual world. Uh, Christian faith is very balanced on that. Uh, we're going to be talking about the dark side of the spiritual realm. It, it's amazing here in the United States particularly how many books are written, not as many as there used to be, but how many books are written about people having, who are having near-death experiences or life after death experiences, whatever you want to call them. And in so many of the books that get published, it seems that everybody who has those experiences, they, they have a death experience and they go toward the light. As, as a historic Christian, I, Christian, I would say some will not go toward the light. You know, that's a hard sell in our American culture. You know, if, if, if Americans accept a spiritual reality, they want to just accept the positive part of the spiritual reality. Uh, the Bible doesn't fall into that trap for a lot of obvious reasons. So again, I'm hoping that what we're doing this week is um, we're getting in touch with reality, God's reality. I hope that um, we are expanding our worldview, uh, both to the world around us and also expanding the way we read the Bible. You know, the Bible is a book coming out of a world that was uh, immersed in spiritual reality. Again, 500 references to angels in the Bible. Uh, when you turn to the New Testament, we'll get into all this, but you almost have to turn to the New Testament. When you turn to the New Testament, there's 63, 63 references to demons in the New Testament. So again, the Bible is immersed in that spiritual realm. And um, Americans are, are amazing to me how they can read the Bible and ignore the spiritual parts, like angels and demons, um, 
call the miraculous. And, and just like sometimes I've noticed, they ignore the geographic parts. When I take you the whole in with me, all of a sudden you'll start paying attention to the geographical parts. You'll notice that you know, Zacchaeus, the wee little man, was in Jericho. You'll start paying attention. It says Jericho. Well, that'll mean something to you at that point. But Americans tend to ignore the geographical references. They tend to ignore the supernatural references. And they just cherry-pick their way through the Scripture, at least mainline-moderated Protestants. Cherry-pick their way through Scripture and just kind of make a God in their own image and a Christian faith that suits their culture. So uh, thank you for being willing to broaden your mind a little bit. So with that, we will move on to, um, to the dark side. Uh, when C.S. Lewis wrote... When C.S. Lewis wrote those screw tape letters, and it was so popular, it is what popularized him, particularly in the United States. Put him on the cover of Time Magazine in 1948. When he wrote that, of course, publishers wanted him to write more of those letters. Um, he refused to. He said it was one of the hardest things he did because he had to put his mind into the mindset of the devil and the demons. And that was a hard thing for him to do. Uh, before he died, he did write one more letter called Screw Tape Proposes a Toast. Go read it sometime. He did write one more. Uh, but he said it was difficult. I, you know, I, I think it's important, I think it's very important uh, to study demonology. I think it's important to study it carefully uh, because it, in a lot of ways, is a very heavy and, and we'll, we'll see that as we go through. One of the most um, memorable things I know about the screw tape letters is when C.S. Lewis got the idea for writing the screw tape letters, you know, letters from a senior devil to a junior devil. He was sitting in church when it came. Don't quite know what that means. Other than I know he rarely liked his pastor. He probably sat there and critiqued the sermons all the time. Uh, but that, the whole screw tape letter thing came from while it was in church. But anyway, um, you need to pay attention to the dark side. So with that, look at part three and part four. I hope to get into part four slightly tonight because we're going to talk about demons in the Old Testament. Uh, you don't find a lot about demons in the Old Testament, particularly in compared to angels in the Old Testament. Uh, we don't find a lot about demons in the Old Testament. So let's jump in. Notice I'll give you a couple verses there about introduction to demons. Uh, the first one comes from Revelation 12. So I invite you to turn to that if you feel so led. You see the text there on your handout. It's Revelation, Revelation 12. Uh, for, we'll start at verse 1. We'll go for a few verses. Um, I enjoy teaching Revelation 12. I think I did it my second year here at Wesley on Wednesday. I think we took a year and made our way through Revelation. We'll do that again one of these days. Uh, but Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, I want to go through verse 9. You're, you're getting a cosmic picture of reality. Again, I hope we get in touch with reality. You're getting a picture of reality from uh, the Bible's Perspective. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. And again, you have to think not like scientific Americans. You have to be able to think in images and symbols. 
here, here's the picture being painted. You don't need to analyze the book of Revelation as much as you need to see it. You need to see it and you need to feel it. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Well, we know who this woman is because we're going to keep reading. This woman is a symbol for the people of God, both Old Testament and New Testament, because this woman is going to give birth to the Messiah. So here's a woman clothed with the sun. She's brilliant, the people of God, Old Testament, New Testament. The moon was under her feet, and on her head was a crown. She's royalty with 12 stars, and that 12 is a dead giveaway. 12, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. The 12 apostles are the reconstituted tribe or people of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 is an important number. But again, verse 2, make sure you understand who this woman is. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Well, even before it gets defined, you probably start figuring out who the great red dragon is. Behold, a great red white dragon with seven heads. Heads mean, you know, some wisdom. Ten horns. Horns usually symbolize power. And on his head, seven diadems. There are people who, who crown this person their Lord. Which is why Jesus says, by the way, three times in the Gospel of John, that the devil, and this is a picture of, the devil or Satan, Jesus refers to as the God of this world. Three times. Uh, Paul refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. So if you want to know who rules the systems of this world, the Bible is very clear about who rules the systems of this world. That's why Jesus three times calls him the God of this world. So he does have wisdom, he has horns, power. Some people crown him as the Lord. So that's the devil, this great red dragon. Now verse four is what I want you to see because here's where we see uh, a symbolic reference to where the demons come from. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Uh, we're gonna look in a little bit at, at a couple of texts that talk about Lucifer and where Lucifer comes from. But you see a third of the stars of heaven being swept down uh, as a result of his rebellion. Uh, this third may be the angelic third. You know, remember, go way back to the first night, we looked like at, uh, we looked at Psalm 103 where, where God is talking to his heavenly council. Well, some of the heavenly council fail. Uh, some of the angels fail. Uh, this appears to sort of symbolize a third of Keep reading again. The dragon stood before the woman, and the woman, by the way, is us. Don't lose sight of that. And the woman stood, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. The Old Testament community gave birth to Jesus, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. There's the primary task, the goal of the enemy to devour Jesus and the work of Jesus. Verse five. She gave birth to a male child. And again, it's obvious who this male child is. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was called up to God and to the throne. There's the ascension. And the woman fled into the wilderness. That's where we are right now. We are the people of God, the people of Jesus, the new covenant people. We're still kind of wandering in the wilderness. Uh, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 
1,260 days. That's the period, that's the church age, which is a period, the church age, however long it lasts, is a period of wilderness, wanderings, and tribulation. Keep going to make sure you get in touch with reality and what's going on around us. Verse 7, now war arose in the heaven, in heaven. Michael, you've already met Michael, he's the only one named Archangel in the book of Jude. Uh, Gabriel probably also is an archangel. Michael and Gabriel are the only two angels mentioned by name in the Bible. Now, war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Remember I said last night, please, please, please don't ever imply, don't ever act like somehow God and the devil are equals. No one is equal to our God. Um, the equals there are Michael and Satan. You see here when the dragon needs defeated, God doesn't come down to defeat the dragon. Uh, Michael is the one that's dispatched to defeat the dragon. Now, a war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And, and, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, again, cast out of heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called devil, was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So there's a, a, a biblical symbolic presentation of uh, the creation of the rebellion, or the rebellion that created uh, the devil and his demons that were cast down to earth. Um, um, you're going to see uh, in one of Peter's letters that the devil is roaring, is, is roaring, is walking about, roaring about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Uh, you know, I wish the devil were in hell. That's not where he's hanging out these days. Now, again, that's why Jesus called the devil the God of this world, because this is where the devil is hanging out at. So anyway, there's the, there's the devil. What I want you to see is that third of the stars that are cast down with the devil. That's sort of seen as as a text that says something about the creation uh, of the demons. A lot of what I'll be saying uh, pertains to the devil and the demons because again, um, you've got angels. You've got good angels and fallen angels. You've got sort of the head of the good angels, that's Michael. You've got the head of the fallen angels, uh, that's the devil or Satan. Uh, Satan was originally, that word was a title. It actually had an, an article in front of it, Hosatan, the Satan, the accuser. The word Satan means accuser. As you look through biblical literature, by the time you move away from uh, Job, for instance, and 1 Samuel, Hosatan, the accuser, just becomes the name Satan. That becomes his name, Satan. So, um, you know, what we say about Satan applies to the demons because, again, Satan is just kind of the leader of the demons, like Michael's the leader of the angels. Uh, by the way, you should be very, very grateful. Again, make sure you, you know, make sure you know who God is. Um, there's no one equal to our God. Only God gets omnipresent. The devil is not even omnipresent, which is why the devil needs his demons. Don't ever make the devil as omnipresent as God. We don't want to make any, any person anywhere near equal to God. Again, the equal of the devil is Michael the archangel, not God. God is in the category all by himself. 
Um, but that's why the devil's not omnipresent. That he's got more than enough demons uh, to torment each one of the followers of Christ. So there's um, there's uh, this is something I want to say about introduction to kind of talk about how many you know where the demons came from. Let me show you two texts that really deal with we think uh, the creation of um, the devil, the fall of the chief fallen angel. You see them listed before you there, Isaiah and Ezekiel, Isaiah 14, and then Ezekiel 28. If you turn to Isaiah 14 first, now we're quick to admit real quickly that both of these texts in their immediate setting are applying or are, are describing some pagan rulers in the days of Isaiah and in the days of Ezekiel. But early on, in Christian history particularly, early on we took these texts, and you'll see why in a moment, we took these texts to also say something to us about uh, the origination of Satan, the rebellion of Satan. Uh, and probably if I just read these two out of context, uh, you, you would know it's the devil. But it's, it's, it's directly a pagan ruler, but we have taken these to say, the, these, these, these verses paint a picture for us as to who, who the devil head demon is. So look at Isaiah chapter 14. Uh, first one is just verses 12 through 14. And here's something you want, I hope you found fascinating. You may know this, verse 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? That's how it starts. So again, it sounds sort of like someone's fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Um, o day star. Do you know what that? That's one word that gets used in the Latin Vulgate, which is the Bible we used for a thousand years. Uh, the Latin Vulgate is the translation of the Hebrew and Greek. St. Jerome's in this window here to my left. St. Jerome created the Latin Vulgate. Uh, in the Latin Vulgate, uh, where my English translation says Old Daystar, he has one, one name there uh, for Old Daystar. You know what it is? Lucifer. Lucifer. That's where the title Lucifer comes from. Lucifer or light bearer. Lucifer means light bearer. Lucy, great name, particularly those of us that love the Chronicles of Narnia. Lucy is light, light bearer. We've had St. Lucy's. Um, so it shouldn't startle you that one of the names we give to the chief of the demons is Lucifer because he will appear to us, as Paul says frequently, as an angel of what? If he shows up with horns and a tail, and that, yeah, we will fall for it. But he shows up in our lives as an angel of light. That's why he can seduce us. So anyway, there's one of the names in, in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, old Lucifer, old Desar, star, son of God. How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend, those are the highs here. I will ascend far above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Well, obviously, you see why we use this text to say this describes the devil. All the eyes here, and you see what caused uh, the fall of Lucifer. He won't give us pride. 
Pride is the chief of all sins in the Christian faith. Uh, we know that from the Bible. We know that especially from the works of St. Augustine. Pride is the chief of all sins. Pride is the sin that gives birth to all other sins in our life. You see, it was pride here that the devil wanted God's place. He was an angel. He wanted God's place. So he wanted to ascend to be above God. Uh, so it was pride that cast uh, the devil down. Pride goes before destruction. Your grandparents probably told you that. They were quoting the book of Proverbs to you. Pride is the chief of all sins in the Christian life. Um, just like humility is the chief of all virtues. You don't get any other virtues unless you have the virtue of humility. If you have the sin of pride, you'll open yourself up to all the other sins. Now, just as an aside, I'll offer it to you for no additional cost. How the word pride is used in this culture. Just cogitate on that one for a while. You know, one of the things, um, if you hang out with me, you will never hear me say, except by mistake, and I'll correct myself quickly. You will never hear me say, I'm proud of my granddaughters, I'm proud of my church, I'm proud of my children. I replace the word pride with I'm grateful. I'm grateful for my grandchildren, I'm grateful for my church, I'm grateful, whatever. Pride is not a good thing, you independent Americans. We need to be careful with that. That's what caused the fall of Lucifer. That's the chief of all sins. Christian theology has always been very clear about it. And here we are celebrating pride in this culture. How far have you fallen, old Lucifer, that you can celebrate the concept of pride? Anyway, so there's Isaiah 14. There's one of the texts that say, says to us, that looks a lot like the origination of Lucifer. Lucifer for us, the devil. Look at the Ezekiel 28 text that I've got listed for you there. Ezekiel 28. Um, I've got listed for you there, Ezekiel 28, 12 through 18. Again, in its immediate context, it was about a pagan ruler that Ezekiel knew about. But it's such exalted language. It's language that seems to be far beyond just anything that a human ruler could um, create. Um, so if you'll notice in Ezekiel 28, I'll begin at verse 12. You notice my, my Bible says it's a lament over the king of Tyre. So it's a lament of the king of Tyre, but on a spiritual level, we say this looks just like the devil. Uh, the king of Tyre would have been an instrument of the devil, a human incarnation of the devil. So look at verse 12, uh, at least about partway through. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect of beauty. Sounds like an angel. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Paul saying, say, we don't know how the king of Tyre would have been in Eden, how the king of Tyre would have been in paradise. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, yeah, you took the form of a serpent there. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And there's some stones listed. Uh, he's beautiful. On the day that you were created, uh, they were all prepared, those beautiful stones. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Again, an angel. Don't quite know how that fits the king of Tyre. Know how it fits the devil. 
You were an anointed guardian cherub. I place you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. All angels are created beings. Uh, till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitudes of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. Sure sounds like Satan, from what we know and elsewhere in the Bible. So these two texts, even though they may have an immediate application to rulers in that age, uh, in the Christian community, we've taken these texts and uh, we, we've said, this is the devil, this is, and this is why, this is the only place we know of Lucifer being a name for the devil is in this Isaiah text. So, um, Genesis 3, the fall, um, just spent three or four weeks preaching on Genesis 3, so I don't want to re recover all that territory, but you know the story of the fall. The serpent speaks to Eve, Adam standing right there beside her, and the serpent says to Eve, doubt God, doubt God's word, doubt God's goodness. Don't you want to be like God? And causes Adam and Eve to rebel against what God told them in paradise. Um, again, Eve's doing most of the talking with the serpent, but Adam's standing right there and does nothing to stop the process. And when, um, when Eve gives Adam the fruit, he just eats of it. See, Adam and Eve both participate in the fall. Now, uh, if you were here in the sermon series on Genesis, I did mention Thanks to all of the authors or the painters that were European who had never been to the Holy Land, they said the fruit had to be, what do we usually think the fruit is? An apple. Not in, not in the Middle East. Um, we, it's just called fruit in, in the book of Genesis. If you're going to pick a fruit, the best shot would be pick a pomegranate. So, and there's lots of reasons, by the way, to pick a pomegranate. Go study Jewish tradition, you know why you should pick but yeah, it's just entitled the fruit. But you know, when you read, if you read the story of the fall, and your biggest question is wonder what kind of fruit it was. We need to work on you a little bit. That's not the most important question to ask. But in Genesis 3, you see the serpent, and it's only a serpent at that point. Uh, called the serpent. Uh, when, when God curses um, the serpent and Adam and Eve, uh, the serpent then becomes the snake that we know. And it is back to the New Testament book of Revelation, where the New Testament author in Revelation says that serpent, that snake in the book of Genesis was, was Satan. So those are some, there's not a lot in the Old Testament about demons. There's some, occasionally you'll run across some lying spirits that look rather demonic, lying spirits, some that torment people like King Saul. Um, you will see Satan calls David to uh, uh, count his people 
and wasn't wrong with, there was nothing wrong with counting his people, except he wanted to count his people to show you how many soldiers he had, to show you the size of his army, to show you how great his kingdom was, so that gives you back to pride. That's why Satan uh, induced or seduced David to, to do a census uh, for, the, for the people of Israel. But you don't see a lot in, in the Old Testament. Um, I think when you turn the page to the New Testament, now in turning the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you probably know you just jumped 400 years in Jewish history. Uh, but in that 400 year period, a lot started to be written and recognized about the powers of darkness. Probably good reasons for that. I've already said a couple of times, particularly when you turn into the gospel, when the Son of God comes to earth, yeah, the enemy kicks it into overdrive. You see that. Even in the New Testament, in the gospels, like I said, demons are mentioned 63 times in the gospels. Their presence sort of fades away in the latter books. Uh, they're mentioned by Paul. The Gospels by Paul, by the time you get to some of the latter books written in the New Testament, not such a strong emphasis on demons. Uh, they didn't go anywhere, they're still around, but there are periods of history. We Christians know this, the Jewish community knows this. There are periods of history when the enemy, Satan and the hordes of hell, are in overdrive. Um, Holocaust has been one of them. Uh, when, the, when the church has been assaulted almost to destruction has been another one of those. But when Jesus came, when the Son of God came, yeah, the enemy was an overdrive. Now, something else that we Christians have said for a couple thousand years, you know, the enemy never gives up. He, 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 he goes a little bit underground because, again, he wants to be seductive. Again, maybe you might not have read screw tape letters, but the devils have read the screw tape letters. They know how to do it. They know how to seduce us and pull us gently away from Jesus. So, um, you know, that's why they're, in some ways, they're, they're not as overt. They can be overt, and I'm going to talk about that some later. They can be overt, but there are periods of history where the demonic is very overt, such as when Jesus came. You know, the devil in the Gospels looks a little bit like that, that thing on Pac-Man that tries to eat you up as you're playing Pac-Man. Most of you are too young to remember Pac-Man, but you remember that little thing that went around trying to eat you up on Pac-Man. That's what you see the demons doing in, in the Gospels. Um, but the church has said frequently throughout our history, and it's in the New Testament, as the end approaches, when Jesus is getting close to finishing his work on earth, when Jesus is getting close to completing his kingdom, when Jesus is getting close to bringing about the kingdom to the extent to what the will of God is presently being done in heaven will be, be done on earth, the enemy will kick it into overdrive. The darkness. Uh, the wheat and the tares grow together. Jesus told you that, right? The good and the evil grows together. We kind of feed on each other in the sense that um, the better we do as a Christian community, um, the, the harder the enemy comes after us. You know, the enemy's not concerned about some churches. Let's let that sink in a moment. The enemy is concerned about some churches. But some churches and some Christians, the enemy's not concerned about. So, um, you know, when, when the wheat and the tares grow together, they feed on each other. 
when, when the wheat grows, the good stuff, the tares will grow too. Um, particularly in periods like the incarnation, uh, Son of God come to earth, and in periods such as when you're approaching the end. Um, you can connect what dots you want. I'm not, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet to quote the book of Amos. But, uh, you know, if the amount of evil in the world today is not somehow a, a sign of the end, I really hesitate to see what that would look like when it comes. Um, but we, we do know that the enemy, the enemy would kick it into overdrive. You know, as we're getting closer and closer and closer to the completion of the kingdom. The Bible teaches, I believe, it gets lost in some Christian churches, that part of the end times will be a great increase in evil and a great revival. Again, the wheat and the tares grow together. Um, there's great revival going on in lots of places around the world, not so much here. But when you look at what's going on in Africa and Asia, south of the equator in South America, there's great revival going on. So, you know, so Americans are not taking note, but the enemy's taking note of that. So, um, you know, the, 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 the enemy's very intelligent. Again, back to the book of Revelation, you saw all, all the, the, the different heads that symbolize the wisdom of the devil. Um, you have, by the way, when you look at this adventure, you have more power than the devil, but he's smarter than you are. So don't try to outwit him. You do have more power, and we'll talk about that power at some point. You have more power than the enemy has, but he's pretty smart. He knows what your weak spots are. He'll know how to use your success to come at you. Again, read scripture letters. He, he, he knows how to come at Christians. And he, he's smarter than we are. And that's why it's the... The, the, the gradual path is the surest, safest path from their perspective to hell. He knows how to come at us. He knows what will tempt us. He knows what will draw us away from, from being passionate followers of Jesus Christ. Anyway, so when you do turn to the New Testament, all of a sudden, demons everywhere. Um, when you turn to the New Testament, you should be shocked by the number of exorcisms in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to look at an exorcism. We're going to look at, that's where we're closing out. We'll look at an exorcism from Jesus. But you should be shocked by the number of exorcisms in the New Testament. Uh, it's really interesting. They're very prominent in, in Mark and Matthew and Luke because Matthew and Luke use Mark. There's not a single one mentioned in John. You ask John that when you get there one day. It's not a single exorcism in John, but you can't miss it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, particularly in Mark, the oldest gospel. Uh, a prevalent part of Jesus' ministry was, ex was exorcism. He cast out demons, or sometimes they're called unclean spirits. He cast out demons. So let me look, look what I've got written for you there. Um, we're looking at demons in the life of Jesus. We're down into part four, believe it or not. I'm almost never in this schedule. But I, I don't want to be pushed tomorrow night. Um, so if you look at what I've got there in the text for consideration, uh, I've just got demons in the life of Jesus. They're all over the place in the life of Jesus. Mark's gospel is the oldest of the four gospels. Uh, Matthew and Luke use Mark. So it's, it's really easy to look at the life of Jesus from Mark. Uh, let me show you three texts, and this is probably as far as I'm going to get tonight. Look at Mark 3 and Mark 5. 
Now, if you read the Jefferson Bible, he cut this kind of supernatural stuff out of his Gospels. But we don't cut them out of our Gospels, except indirectly and unconsciously. I hope you haven't cut this stuff out of your Gospel. Look at Mark chapter 3. There's something that's really interesting here. Um, if you look at Mark chapter 3, notice the text I've given you, 3, 20 and following. Um, I still hear the pages turning. See you there. I do want you to look at these two texts in Mark. In 320, um, then he, the he here is Jesus, then he went home. What city was the home of Jesus during his adult ministry? Thank you, Capernaum. You know, again, uh, I, I just, all Christians know their book. A lot of Christians know he was born in Bethlehem, he was raised in Nazareth, he died in Jerusalem, and but you ask, where, what, where, where was his home? As an adult, you get a blank stare, which is okay, I guess. Um, except a lot of Christians who don't know where Jesus' home was, they, they sure know that Graceland was Elvis' home. Um, anyway, Capernaum. Capernaum was where Jesus hung out. He didn't have his own home. Whose, whose home did he live in? In Capernaum. Peter's, thank you. You live in Peter's home. Anyway, that's in the book. I didn't just make that up. Read the book. Um, yeah, so he's, he's gone home here, verse 20, chapter 3, Mark. Then he went home, back to Capernaum, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Because they were in a home. They were in Peter's home. Uh, and his family, Jesus had a family, and his family heard it, and they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. It's the Gospel of Mark that says he has four brothers. They're half-brothers, but he has four brothers. They're named in Mark chapter 6, chapter, verse 3. He had some sisters. They're not named, but it's plural, so he had at least two sisters. But anyway, there's no father mentioned at this point. Joseph is probably dead. But here Mary and his brothers come to Capernaum from Nazareth, about a 25-mile journey, come to take Jesus home. They think he's out of his mind. Let that sink in for a moment. Now, the other people that are being like the person on Pac-Man or whatever that little thing is on Pac-Man that's chasing Jesus beside the demons, that the demons are using these people, are some of the religious leaders. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, they went a hundred miles from Jerusalem to Capernaum. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, watch this, he is possessed by the elders by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Beelzebul is, is the devil. That's the name in the New Testament for the devil. Comes from the Philistines. That was a pagan god at Hebron. But you see um, the New Testament using that as a title for the devil. Beelzebul or Beelzebul. Um, you know what that literally translates into? Thank you, Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. Remember that book from high school? Anyway, so here's the title for the devil. Beelzebul, or Beelzebul, Lord of the Flies. What are they saying about Jesus? They are acknowledging that he's healing the sick. They're acknowledging he's doing the miraculous. They're acknowledging he is exercising demons or casting out unclean spirits. But they're foolish enough to say he's able to do that because of what? He's in league with the devil. 
Well, these people, you ever notice when people want to come at you, they're not even logical sometimes. They're not being logical, which is why Jesus goes on to say, verse 23, and he called them, he called them to him and said to them uh, in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If the kingdom is divided against itself, and the kingdom cannot, the kingdom cannot stand. If the house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Yeah, if he's casting out demons by Satan, why would Satan be casting out demons? That doesn't make sense, but the enemies of Jesus are grasping at straws. But notice what they're not doing. They're not denying that he's doing supernatural things, like casting out demons. They just want to attribute it to demonic power. Verse 27 gives you good uh, theology of the demons. Uh, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first finds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So the devil is the strong man. Jesus is the stronger man. So Jesus has come to plunder uh, the house of the strong man. Jesus has come to take back what the enemy has taken possession of. Uh, again, Jesus calls the devil the God of this world. Would Jesus come to take it back? He's going to eventually present it to the Father. But he's got to take back. So the strong man is the devil, but Jesus is the stronger man who's plundering. We could hang out here for a really long time, but I want to get you to the pig story. So go to uh, chapter 5. Don't you see a demon possession? And we'll end with, we'll end with that. Sweet dreams. Um, in chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. They came to the other side. This is Jesus and the disciples. They came to the other side of the sea. The other side from Capernaum. The other side from the Jewish side of the sea of God. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately, there met him out of the tombs. A man with an unclean spirit, that's a phrase that's used for demons in the New Testament. A man with an unclean spirit, he lived among the tombs. In the book of Revelation, the devil has two, two angels, two fallen angels, two demons. One is named Hades and one is named Death. Uh, the devil loves death. He wants that to be the end for us. Anyway, here this demon-possessed man, this is demon possession here. We'll talk about that. He, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. You see the power of someone possessed by a demon. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The enemy wants to destroy our souls and destroy our bodies. Cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, watch this, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? His disciples haven't even figured that out yet. But the devil knows they, The devil knows who Jesus is. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Uh, the devil's a good theologian. 
The devil and his hosts know more about Jesus than a lot of Christians do. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion. But we are many. Legion, the Roman legion, is, is somewhere between four and six thousand soldiers. Between four and six thousand. Talk about this man says possessed is, the, is an understatement. His name is Legion. Anyway, you know how the story ends. Jesus cast out the demon, demons. Where does he cast them into? The swine, which is why we know this side of the Sea of Galilee is not a Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. There's pigs. And once he casts the, 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 the demons into the swine, they run down into the Sea of Galilee and drowned. Go with me to Israel. I'll show you the mount that we think is the mouth of pigs ran down into the water. Um, anyway. Exorcisms all over the place. Now, Thomas Jefferson cut this out of his Bible. Please don't cut it out of yours. Do something with this. Um, he, you know, as an exorcist, is one of the prevailing ways in, um, in the Gospel of Mark that you see Jesus presented. He's casting out demons. He's casting out unclean spirits. So this is a good place to stop, and we can real easily finish up tomorrow night. Um, I'm so just impressed. Y'all keep coming back. I know there's stuff on TV to be watching tonight. So when I finish up tomorrow night, um, I don't, believe it or not, I will finish up on a positive note about demons. That's hard to do, but I will do that. It's really not hard to do. I will finish up on a positive note about demons. And I will share. Um, I will share an experience with you briefly. Um, I'll leave it at that. Um, I, will, I, will, I, will, I will move a little bit away from Scripture tomorrow night and talk about some personal experience with this stuff. So let's pray together. God, I give you thanks for these people who, who want to passionately follow you. We want you to be Lord of all of our lives, not just a religious department of our life. But we want you to be Lord of all of our lives. Take us and make us completely yours. Use each one of us in this cosmic struggle that engulfs our planet. Use each one of us to do the bidding of you and your angels. God, we pray that we will continue to fight the, fight the good fight, the fight of faith, that we'll run the race so that we can receive that crown that awaits us one day. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.